Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome or welcome back to the 48th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial planning and financial markets. So good morning to you, Matt. Good morning, Mark. How you doing? Good, good. Short week this week, um, but it's been a pretty positive week for the market so far, so I think everyone um, is relatively happy about that. Yep. Market continues to climb the quote-unquote wall of worry. Yeah. Yeah, so the focus kind of shifting back more towards a couple other news headlines other than just the coronavirus, I think. So we'll get into that here in a little bit. Um, so as always, we'll take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on May 27th, and the data is from Coifin. The S&P 500 index is up. <laughs> Louis. Louis. For our listeners, um, you might have heard in the background. Oh, we, God. I, I office, tried to hold it in. We have an office puppy. Uh, it's my dog, um, Louis. And someone walked in. He wasn't too happy about that. And then uh, when I got upset listeners, he came over to apologize and pretty much got in my lap. <laughs> I tried to hold it in, but I couldn't. Um, so if you hear any more noises, it's probably Louie again chewing his bone or barking at somebody. Um, so the S&P 500 index is up 4.25% for the month and down 5.93% for the year. The Dow up 4.94% for the month and down 10.32% for the year. The NASDAQ up 5.89% for the month and up 4.91% for the year. The IWM ETF that tra tracks the Russell 2000 index is up 9.81% for the month, down only now 13.63% for the year. So small caps making surging up here, making up some ground here in May, which is interesting and something we need to keep an eye on. The Vanguard International ETF X United States is up 4.41% for the month and down 15.35% for the year. The three-month T-bill yielding 0.15%, two-year Treasury yield sits at 0.18%, and the 10-year Treasury yield sitting at 0.69%. So I think it's an important step, at least from the markets, uh, in terms of continuing to recover, Matt, that small caps are having uh, kind of a breakout month here, and we'll see if that you know, continues into uh, June of this year. Yeah, I think it's representative, in my opinion, of people starting to, you know, trade up that risk curve again. And, you know, things that are all necessary, in my opinion, to have some sort of a positive, sustainable rally. And, you know, so that's a positive in my view. Yeah, typically, I like to see coming off of market lows, I like to see small caps participating, and I like to see transportation participating. And um, we're starting to see both of those kind of break out here, at least on a short term basis. So uh, we will continue to watch that. Um, so news and headlines from the past week, uh, news of a potential vaccine for COVID-19 started last week off with a bang mat and the Dow rose, up, uh, you know, about a thousand points, which is like 3.9% last Monday. 
And then a day later, you know, there was scientist skepticism over, you know, the trial results and that kind of put a damper on the rally. Yep. But as we mentioned when we started this morning, you know, it's been a strong week, uh, nevertheless, at least uh, so far in the short trading week that we have here. Yeah, we're kind of going through this transition right now, Mark, between, you know, the focus on the pandemic related headlines to some tea leaves regarding U.S. and Chinese um, tensions, mm-hmm. right? And a lot of that, <clears throat> I think, um, was derived from the perception or whatever intelligence that the Trump administration has that they were hiding the fact that COVID was over there a lot earlier than it than the Chinese were openly admitting. Right. And among I, other things, I mean, there's probably yeah. other things involved yeah. with it. But I know that that was a big sticking point. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting now, too, because on top of that, you have, you know, uh, President Xi of China, um, you know, trying to declare rule over Hong Kong again now. And yeah, he's being opportunistic, right? Yeah. And I, I heard last night or read an article that the, the State Department is mulling over, you know, sanctions on, on China right now. So this could, you know, this stuff that's been going on the past two, three years can all get reignited pretty quick, I think. Oh, yeah. So... It'll be interesting to, to kind of follow that uh, for the next couple of weeks. Yep. Um, so moving on to tweets, articles, and research from the week that caught our eyes. Um, I'll start, Matt, and I'll start with a couple of tweets from Jerry Parker. And this was on May 21st, and he was quoting an article written on Institutional Investor. Okay. So these two I just found, you know, that I, I agreed with, and I thought that they were set in a really good way. Um, The first one, he says, if you're a long-term investor in a strategy that is painful to stick with but delivers strong long-term results, if you do stick with it, that is a strategy that is very hard to arbitrage away. And I think that that relates pretty closely with what we just went through in the stock market, right? Um, You know, during times of stress, it's very hard to stick with. And we found that that with a lot of people that rings true. But over the long term, it's hard to find, you know, a better wealth generating machine for most people than than the market. That's right. So when you look at the returns from point A to point B, you know, they're attractive, but that doesn't come at, 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 a, at a free cost. No. You know, what what's the byproduct of that? The byproduct is you got to deal with the volatility, especially in brief points of time where it could be very extreme, i.e. mid-February to the end of March of 2020. Mm-hmm. And. I think if a lot of listeners have a trusted advisor or if they do it themselves and they put in a lot of research, due diligence and tracking with it, and they're invested in line with their risk tolerance and goals, you know, hopefully that gets them through those time periods. Right. But I, I think that um, when those periods happen uh, with uh, influences from the talking heads, the media, you know, people get caught up into, well, this could continue for months and months and years and years. And, you know, um, we cans end up selling out. And just like I've said on multiple podcasts before, those we cans tend to come in and buy back into the market at a later point when it feels comfortable at what? A lot higher prices. Right. Right. So I thought that was a good one. And then he had another one um, that he was, I think he was quoting an article on money.cnn.com. Um, But he said, understanding that we do not know the future is such a simple statement, but it's so important. 
Investors do better where risk management is a conscious part of the process. Survival is the only road to riches. So I think that that, you know, that that is pretty good because a lot of people, and I'm going to get into this with an article here in a little bit, you know, they think they can predict the future and they think that, you know, investing in stocks is a, a, a sexy, you know, gambling type of environment. But once you actually start to do it, I think you quickly realize that it isn't. Um, so I don't know. Just thought I wanted to throw that out there for people. I thought that was a cool one, too. Good. Um, so moving on, um, this was a quote from Michael Batnick's blog post on May 21st as well. And his blog is called The Irrelevant Investor. And we've talked about him several times on the podcast before. Yep. But he says, quote, 7% per year for 10 years sounds like a pretty decent return. And yet everybody has been complaining about it. This 7% represents the return of large value stocks the last decade, which is pretty good. That is, until you consider that few things are more relative in this world than investing, where people compare returns to what they could have earned somewhere else. 7% isn't bad, but compared to 14%, which is what large growth did over the same time, it's downright awful. So the point I wanted to make here, Matt, is to not pigeonhole yourself into only investing in value stocks or only investing in growth stocks. It's okay to have a little bit of both because over time, you know, they're going to be swapping relative performance over time, right? Exactly. And no one knows when value is going to start outperforming growth. And, you know, we've had people calling for years that, you know, it was time for values turn to regain the lead over growth and it hasn't happened yet. So you can't just, you know, pigeonhole yourself into one category or the other, I, I think. No, I think that's a great, um, a great tweet that you kind of brought to everybody. You know, <clears throat> I'll kind of remind listeners, a loosely defined term of growth and value is this. It has to do with a company's growth and earnings on a year-over-year or an annual basis. And very loosely, listeners, companies that are less than double digits, less than 10%, tend to be categorized as a value name. And companies that are growing earnings in excess of 10% a year are considered a growth name. So examples of that is like, you know, some of the tech names, most of the tech names are considered growth names, right? Amazon, Microsoft, yeah. cl classic examples. And then like you're thinking your consumer staples, you know. Utility like, names that maybe don't grow as quick. That are the typical value names. Exactly. So, you know, looking at this, it's just interesting because, you know, one could argue historically that these two groups, value and growth, also have different, say, risk reward characteristics. However, the last couple of years, there's been some some pretty big hits to, to value names. Right. And I think historically, Mark, there's been this perception in the marketplace uh, for a long time when I was getting started in the business that well, value is more conservative than growth. And I think that's a dangerous, it's dangerous very, statement. Very dangerous. So, yeah. Because, you know, I think at least over the past couple of years, at least in my opinion, the market's done a good job of discounting the fact that a lot of these value names, you know, they're cheap for a reason, right? You know, there's and more. It doesn't than, mean, like you said, they can't get cheaper. Yeah, exactly. 
exactly. So that's that's another situation where I think it's just a falling knife thing, and I, I just don't like to get involved in that type of thing. And the last thing I'll throw out there, but maybe before you go on to the next one, is internally in our practice, we have what I like to call an all-cap strategy, meaning that we have the ability to buy small, medium, and large-sized companies, and we're agnostic on style, meaning we could do growth, we could do value, we can do a combination of that. And I think having that flexibility and having a money manager that has that flexibility, I think is very key, especially in the types of trading environments that we're in right now. So right. I'm going I'm to pat us on the back there because I think it's vital. Well, yeah, I think it's kind of a no brainer because, you know, we we want stuff that's that's going up and stuff that's working and it's not going to be the same the same type or the same stock in the same bucket every single time. Or right? same style year in, year yeah, out. Yeah, you have to be adaptive and be able to change. So. Um, okay. Well, uh, another article that I, uh, read last week was by, uh, Nick Maguli on his blog of dollars and data. And this was on May 19th, uh, when he posted this and the post is titled why failed predictions don't matter. And I've, you know, talked about this a little bit before on the podcast. I'm a huge critic of people who make predictions, Matt, and you know that, mm-hmm. uh, I just don't think that it does any good because no one knows exactly what the future holds and it gives people a false sense of hope, I think, or courage to make an investment decision. And I think that's really dangerous. Um, and Nick gets into this a little bit in this article. So I thought it'd be fun to share. Yeah, let's do this. Um, so Nick says, in all seriousness, I used to think that making predictions that turned out embarrassingly wrong was bad for your image. But I've slowly begun to realize that most people, and especially devout followers, don't really care. Why? Because it is so easy to rationalize the failed predictions after the fact without causing any long-term reputational damage. For example, do you think the fans of Elon Musk cared when he got this COVID-19 prediction so gloriously wrong? And this was um, back you know, early during the COVID stuff, I think this tweet was in, yeah, it was on March 19th. And Elon tweeted, based on current U.S. trends, probably close to zero new cases in U.S. too by the end of April, which obviously panned out to not be true at all. Yep. Um, But why did he say this? Because he has an agenda, right? Closing Mm -hmm. down the economy is obviously not good for his company, Tesla, right? Yep. Um, so you have to be really careful when you're listening to these people and what they're saying, because everyone who says this stuff out there on social media or in the mainstream media, they have an agenda. Absolutely. Right. Uh, so Nick goes on and says, most people can overcome cognitive dissonance with the right amount of social support, meaning that predictors and their supporters can rationalize, right? Why their predictions turn out wrong. Oh, well, you know, it was because this, this and this that this, you know, this prediction didn't happen. Sure. If you believe something so much like uh, I think Nick, you know, in the beginning of this article uses an example of a group of people that thought that aliens were going to come down and take them up to Mars or another planet. And, you know, each time the prediction failed, I think it was like three or four times. They always rationalized why, why it why it didn't happen. So if you have a strong group of followers, kind of like how I think Elon Musk does, you're always going to have the rationalization behind it of their followers, and they're not going to care, right? Um, 
you know, more examples. So Steve Jobs said uh, in the past that the Segway was going to be bigger than the PC. That was a flop. Steve Ballmer laughed at the unveiling of the iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> and for those that don't know, Steve Ballmer was a big executive at Microsoft. Yes. And now I believe owner of the Clippers. Clippers. Yeah. Yes. Um, and then this one, Alan Greenspan, the former head of the Federal Reserve, said he was going to we were going to see double digit interest rates after 2007. Hmm. And all of them were dead wrong. But who cares? No one. Because no one holds these people accountable, especially, you know, in the finance and investing world. So, yeah, I mean, you don't have someone on TV and say, okay, you've been on here 10 previous times. Here's the things that you mentioned and here's how they panned out. They don't show you that. No, no. And people got to remember, I mean, I saw the other week Stan uh, Drunkenmiller and uh, David Tepper considered two of one of the best investors of all time by a lot of people came out and, you know, were... Uh, you know, pounding the table on, you know, how they're still very cautious and they're still bearish. But people also have to realize that, you know, they're the way they manage money and the way they invest and why they invest is different from the average retail investor. That's you know? right. And they could have different and they can know, say and they can say one thing one day and the next day completely flip completely their stance different. and their portfolio. So you can't you can't make investment decisions based on just listening to these people. Now, to prove that point, I'll digress just very briefly. I saw this morning when I woke up, this was a tweet from right around 630 this morning. And um, it was a snippet of a note released on May 28th, so it was this morning, from B of A Securities, and it shows hedge funds, and they've been huge net sellers now since April. And so the market has done what since April, Mark? Continued higher. And so you can't also look at, you know, the talking heads and like, wow, that's a bold prediction. I better follow that. Because, you know, people like to say, quote unquote, well, the hedge funds are the smart money. Well, based upon this statistic by B of A, they've been net sellers since April. That's not exactly been a smart move. No, it hasn't. It hasn't. I think that's why you have to be really careful and take, like I said before, everything, you know, these people say with a grain of salt who come out there and make and they can change on a dime the next day and they're they not going to come back out and, 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 and telegraph that. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So. Just thought that was an interesting piece because I I really uh, you know think that that's something that people need to be careful about. Uh, Nick wrote another article uh, back on May fifth that I wanted to bring up for some time now, titled "Why Should You Invest in Stocks?" And I just want to go over a graphic that he included that kind of caught my eye, um, which we'll try to put in the show notes. And Nick said that on the probability side, consider how often the Dow has provided a positive return over different holding periods. So this graphic shows um, the percentage of time the Dow is positive over different holding periods. So all of all one day holding periods in the Dow since 1915, it says since 1915, if you just held for one day, a little over 50 percent of the time the Dow was positive. Okay. Five days was closer to 60. Okay. One month was a little above 60%. Got it. All one year holding periods, close to 70% of the time, it's positive. positive. Okay. Over a five year period, close to 80% of the time, the Dow's positive. Over a 10 year period, just under 90% of the time, 
the Dow has been positive over all 10-year periods. And then once you get to all 20-year holding periods, it's just about 95% of the time the Dow is positive. And this is, this is, a, this is a big uh, big article, and I'm, I'm glad that you brought up to listeners. And in addition, there's a very key um, note at the bottom of that chart, and it says... Dow data does not include dividends. Mm -hmm. So um, listeners, this is an important key to take away. Most investors approach these things that they're just concerned about buying a stock, XYZ stock at $10, and it goes to 15. I made $5 a share or 50%, and mm -hmm. they might have owned that stock for 10 years. Right. What a lot of investors fail to do, Mark, is include the dividends if that stock and or investment pays one, including that in your return statistic. Because I'm going to go out there and I'm going to speculate that on that 10 and 20 year, it might push you to the or close to the 100% level when you include dividends. the dividends. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Or let alone if you did dividend reinvestment and let that compound. Right, right. Which I, you know, I think that's the way to go about it too. So I just, I think dividends. this is a, a great statistic because this, in my opinion, helps investors stay focused on not what the market's going to do next month in June of 2020. It's going to keep people focused on what the market's going to do the next couple of years yeah. and how that aligns with their goals and objectives. Yeah. And it's just like I look at it from like a like a betting perspective, right? So you know, over the twenty, you got to look period, at the statistics. You know, I would make that bet over Absolutely. a twenty-year period when there's ninety-five percent of the time, you know, the Dow was positive over twenty-year periods. I would, I would one hundred percent make that bet. Yeah, I mean, kind of reminds me when people kind of talk about Warren Buffett. You know, with compounding, you know, Warren Buffett, you know, back in the in the sixties and seventies was small potatoes, relative. And it was time in the market, it was compounding that really put him in the position that he turned into in the 90s and the 2000s. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people just think, oh, he's been this huge investor with this large amount of money and fund for decades and decades and decades. That's not true. Right. Right. And it's him sticking to his strategy, right? So he's a, you know, quote unquote, value guy. And you know, he's underperformed the past decade if you look at like Berkshire's returns. But over the long period since he started, he's he's still crushing the the market's performance. Absolutely. So you have to give it time and stick to your strategy and you'll reap the benefits. Two things I'll say there. One, he has pivoted over time. So in the two thousands, I would never envision this guy buying a technology name. And lo and behold, He's one of the largest shareholders of Apple, right? You know, so if uh, listeners, if you go in and look at the top holders of Apple stock, Berkshire Hathaway owns approximately five and a half percent of Apple. And that wouldn't have not happened, I think, 15 years ago. But he had to pivot. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so that, I think that, that's a big point um, I'll make with that. Yeah. All right. Back to you, Mark. Uh, no, that's all I had. Okay. So, go ahead. I got two notes uh, for listeners. Um, first is from Argus Research. And Mark, this is from May 20th. And it's an update on U.S. debt levels to GDP. The reason I wanted to bring this to listeners' attention 
is there have been a lot more articles sprouting back up in regards to can the U.S. handle these debt levels? Because they're printing money right now. Right. Okay. They're issuing more debt. So I want to read this. Total U.S. debt is now more than 100% of U.S. GDP. That's the highest level mark since World War II. In the 1980s, the debt to GDP ratio was in the 40% range, and it moved up to the 60% level by 2000. The debt level soared around uh, 2010 as the government spent aggressively to break the 07-09 recession and rekindle growth, which is what the government's supposed to do. And still, despite more than 10 years of economic growth, the debt level has only grown as a percentage of GDP. So we're right around 100%. Now, when people say, well, how far can it go before we really have, you know, significant uh, adverse consequences? Is that a good way of saying it? Mm -hmm. So you can look, a lot of the European countries are in the mid 100s, let's say 140, 160 debt to GDP. And then one can take the extreme example, which would be Japan. Mm -hmm. And in that example, they're in the mid 200s, right? And so I'm not here trying to make the claim that we could do more and be fine. I'm providing this as a comparison that, yeah, we're at 100% debt to GDP. That doesn't uh, get me excited, but it's also not, not catastrophic either. Mm -hmm. That's the, kind of the point I want to make. Yeah, it's been a hot topic. And I and, you know, I I just I don't know. I, I don't know. It, I mean, this it could get a lot bigger and we couldn't have you know, we could possibly not have any consequences or we could have a lot of consequences. It's just like one of those things that it's like it, we're not going to know until it happens. That's a good way of saying it, <laughs> you know, good way of saying it. All right, Mark, I got one more. Uh, this is from Braver Capital Management. From time to time, I'll kind of quote them. This is a note from uh, last week, May 22nd, and I'll share a couple tidbits about it. Um, they say the pattern holds when we look at stats on behavior. More people are eating out than they were a few weeks ago. Mobility data tells us people are venturing, venturing away from home more often than they were just a few weeks ago. And a large number of people are flying of late than they were a few weeks ago as well. Yes, we're coming off very depressed levels and activity is still very slow. So it's bad, but Mark, it's getting better. Mm -hmm. Now, they shared some numbers. So over the last seven days, and this is through May 22nd, okay, uh, on average, about 230,000 people have gone through TSA checkpoints on a daily basis. Now, that's double from a month ago when just about 100,000 people were going through TSA checkpoints to fly on a daily basis. So it's getting better. However, when you compare it to pre-COVID, 2.4 million people flew each day or went through a TSA checkpoint. Wow. So... It's still extremely depressed, but it's getting better. Many investors are confused by the fact the stock market is rising while the economic data paints a painful picture of a recession. Part of the answer is monetary and fiscal support provided by the Federal Reserve and Congress. And we have talked about this extensively over the past several months on this podcast. Another part of the explanation, Mark, is that investors always look ahead. Stock prices are based upon what they think will happen in the future, not what happened in the past. 
As such, investors and traders may be focused on the improvements in the data over the past few weeks, even if the numbers are still poor in absolute terms. Yes, things are bad. And yes, a resurgence in the virus could derail the recovery. But for the time being, things are moving in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's just important again to, to bring up that the stock market is not the economy and the economy is not the stock market. And they're not going to move in tandem all the time. And this is because, like we said before, the market discounts all of this bad news usually before it all comes out and begins to recover as the news hits its worst, right? So we're always forward looking in the market. And I know it's hard psychologically to to understand that for a lot of people. Um, you know, it's, it's hard. Things are so bad, right? But you just have to keep thinking that, you know, this is how the market works. It's, exactly. it's always forward looking. It's not going to price in what's happening, you know, today or what happened yesterday. Yeah, and to try to give a little bit of um, additional clarity to listeners as to why does this matter to you and I? Well, when we see this data and we see people starting to venture out, that it could be some tea leaves relating to consumer spending and what companies could benefit from that consumer spending, what names actually benefited from the quarantine, what names will benefit if we see a pent-up demand this summer? And listeners, that's why we like to talk about this type of data, is behind the scenes, we're trying to make investments and capitalize on these types of things. And, you know, once again, I think there's two pieces of data here. Again, it's encouraging. We're seeing more and more economic activity, though it's at still depressed levels. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is, just remember, as Mark said, listeners, there's a difference between what the stock market is doing and the economy, especially in light of all of the economic stimulus between the Federal Reserve and Congress. It definitely is distorting the difference right now between the economy and the market in the yeah, markets. Yeah, I agree. Back to you, Mark. OK, um, we'll go over the financial planning topic of the week. And this week's comes from an article in The Wall Street Journal. And this was back at the end of April. Uh, it was titled How to Protect Your Credit If Your Income Takes a Hit. And this was by Cheryl Winokur and or excuse me, Cheryl Winokur Monk. And obviously, there's been a lot of people, Matt, who have lost their jobs over the past few months. And we've been giving some tips on how to shore up your finances since the coronavirus hit. Absolutely. And another thing to look at is your credit and how that might be affected if payments are missed or if they're late, you know, et cetera. So let's kind of walk through this article and go through some things everyone can do to help protect their credit. I'm glad you picked this one, especially yeah. in light with everything going on. Yeah. Um, so... Straight from the article, if a person's credit score slips even a little, there can be serious short-term and long-term consequences. The dangers include higher borrowing costs and difficulty obtaining future loans. Some companies even run credit checks on job applicants. It's true. People who lost their jobs or think they might shouldn't just stop making payments or assume a creditor will grant them relief without being asked. But personal financial experts say if consumers with burdensome debt approach lenders the right way, they will often find a willingness to work out some relief, at least temporarily. And I think this is uh, something that is 
not done by a lot of people is that all it could take is a simple phone call to your creditor and ask for temporary relief. And a lot of the times you'll find that they're going to grant it to you. They're going to do it. It's not going to show up on your credit. And I think that this is an environment where communication is key. And we're and again, we're in a time, Matt, that I think that like people don't want to sit on the phone with, you know, credit card companies or whoever utility companies, whoever it is painful. And it's really doing a disservice to yourself if you need relief from some of your creditors. I mean, you just have to get on the phone, take the 20 minutes and and get it done. Yeah. I mean, it kind of reminds me uh, in the past, we've had conversations with um, clients or potential clients who say, listen, I got this kind of letter from, you know, the IRS and it's asking me for this, this 1099 that supposedly I didn't file and man, I got to call them and I know it's going to be a pain. And it's like, no, it's not. Yeah. Cause anybody that I've spoke to that has like directly called the IRS, they've been great. Yeah. They're easy to work with. You explain the situation. Hey, listen, I missed that 1099. I'll, I'll send it in if I owe any tax. Can you forgive, you know, any penalties or or interest? And usually they say yes. Yeah. You know, yeah, we're all human. Ask. We're all human. Mm-hmm. And I just think it kind of goes back to what you're saying. It's like at the end of the day, I know those calls can be painful. You're going to be on hold for a long time. You got the voice bank. It's like, why are you calling? And you're like, customer service, customer service. Yeah. <laughs> but at the end of the day, the result I think is going to be huge for a lot of people that have economic strains right now yeah. because we are hearing that companies are being very, I think, uh, good in understanding in this environment. Yeah, no, I agree. You just got to pick up the phone and call. I know. Um, so uh, they kind of lay out a couple of steps here um, on what people can do. And the first thing is taking an inventory. So start by making a list of all your creditors and current monthly payments. Creditors can include a mortgage company, landlord, auto lender, credit card companies, utilities, cell phone provider, and healthcare providers. Step two is determining your cash flow. So to to determine how much you can reasonably afford to pay each creditor, look at how much money is readily available. Is there a severance? Is there money in a savings account? What about an emergency fund or unemployment checks, which can take a while to start? Once people understand what they can afford to pay and for how long, it can help them decide on what cuts are needed to make ends meet. The third step is understanding the potential options and if keeping up with non-discretionary bill payments could be problematic, the next step is to reach out to creditors to discuss options for relief. Many creditors will negotiate because it is better for them to get something rather than nothing. That's the key right there. And that's the key. Simply avoiding debt payments by contrast isn't a good solution and will only hurt a person's credit, experts say. But that's the thing. I mean, you know, these credit card companies, they would rather get, you know, 50% of the payment rather than nothing at all. Absolutely. So people think about that when you're going to call these companies and- there was a new survey from Lending Tree Matt that found that 91% of homeowners who asked their mortgage lender for a reprieve from their monthly payment for coronavirus related reasons were granted one. That's big. 91% of credit card holders who asked their card issuer for a break on their monthly payment due to virus related issues got one. Of those, 67% were granted relief on every card they asked about, while 24% got a break on some of their cards, the survey found. So again, 
not a huge survey person, but I think the proof numbers the are pretty encouraging that, yeah. that if you make that call, um, I would just tell listeners uh, just to add that just to add something to this. If you're going to call and you're going to make a payment that is less than the minimum payment, I would be very specific listeners and ask that if uh, I send in less and you agree to it, I don't want that to negatively affect my credit. Mm -hmm. And that has to be something you directly ask. Yeah. So just because they sit there and say, well, your minimum payment's 200. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll accept 100. It's like, that's great. I appreciate that. But I want to make sure that by me making that $100 payment, that's not going to negatively impact my credit. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's a key question to ask. Yeah. And either, you know, I mean, most of these conversations are recorded by whoever the issuer is but even try to get something like in writing yes email send me a letter send me a quick email yeah you get a get a paper trail on it right okay um no questions this week matt so is there anything you want to mention before we wrap up for the week uh, no, we have a Fed meeting coming up in early June. We're not expecting uh, much fireworks from that. Calendar-wise, you know, um, the data uh, from companies is pretty light. We just ended earnings season. Earnings season won't begin again in another, for another six weeks. Uh, so we're just kind of in a mode where uh, I would say information flow from companies is 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 pretty low right now. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, we're going to be recording the podcast uh, next Tuesday, so it's going to be earlier in the week. And um, those are the things I wanted to cover. Okay. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in to the 48th episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. We hope you all have a wonderful rest of the week and a good weekend. And we'll see you back here on Tuesday. See you Tuesday. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.